I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 140. Guess what I learned today? What? So me and some of the girls at work were talking, and all three of them listened to the podcast. Hey, girl, hey. So Maddie and Erica were talking about how they listen to podcasts on, like, increased speed, like we do. Well, well, I do. (laughs) Not me. I do. Why'd you have a whistler? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I do. Like, I can't even do it. I don't know. I channeled my inner old man. Okay. Right? So they were talking about how they listen to stuff, like, on increased speed, and I think Megan was saying she does, too. And she goes, did y'all know you can watch Netflix on an increased speed now? What? I said, um... Skirt. And yeah, on your phone. I don't know if you can do it like on a fire stick or on your TV. I don't fucking know. But on your phone, like you just tap the screen like you're going to pause it or try to open closed caption. And on the bottom, it says speed. I mean, plain as fucking day. And you click it and you can watch things faster. So here I come, Wentworth, on one point fucking five. Oh my gosh. I was like, this is life changing. I'm going to get through so many things. Yes. Now, see, I can watch stuff fast. If TikTok had a fast forward button or a fast button, I would watch triple the TikToks. But these people just talk so fucking slow. They talk slow, but even like it just takes forever to get to the very end. And I'm like, I just need to get to the end. I want to see what they look like at the end. Yes. Or like, let me see the punchline at the end. Yes. So you have to wait the whole like 60, 90 seconds, whatever it is. 60. And if you miss one thing in the fucking middle and you're like, fuck, I got to sit here for another 35 fucking seconds to get to the part that I missed. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then those people who are very tactical, where they have, like, blah, 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 blah. It's a whole, like, story. And then they have it where it just, like, comes up on the screen real fast, and mm-hmm. you have to, like, stop it to see to it. To read it all. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So life forever changed, thanks to Megan at work, that I can now watch things on Netflix in increased speed. I'm going to try that on Dawson's Creek. I, oh, that is a show that you will definitely, you probably go 2.0 on that. <laughs> well, sometimes. Again, their vocabulary sometimes. But if you have subtitles on, you'll be able to see the word that you didn't really understand them say because it's out of your vocabulary. You'll be fine. Well, this new feature better be everywhere, like on a fire stick, because they're going up a dollar. What is? Netflix! Are you serious? Yes! I mean, it costs a lot of money to be able to speed something up. <laughs> it's all that money they spent on the Emily and Paris budget. Right? That wardrobe, though. I was thinking more like the permits to film in all those places. Oh, true. I don't know. That's probably all fake. True. You know, it's not fake. The extra content that Patreoners are now getting. Well, they've been getting. But the new people are now getting. Yes. So, thank you so much, Jen L. from California. Haley P. from Arizona. Chris C. from Connecticut. Kim K. from Arkansas. Jenny B. from Alabama. Sarah D., who signed up under Makeup Nerds, so shout out, from Illinois. Michelle S. from Texas. And Ellie H. from Idaho. Utah. <laughs> we all know. If you want all this extra content that they're getting, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. It's so crazy to think that we're on episode 140. Like, it seems like just yesterday we started... But it's also surreal that I just saw Georgia Hardstark post on Instagram about them being, like, part of a Simpsons episode. Like, it had, like, Georgia and Karen, like, their things. Oh, my gosh. Things. Yeah. And, um, like, I don't think they did their voices. or Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think it was just, like, podcasters and it was them. And it had them drawn out. 
And she said they've been doing the podcast for five years. Holy shit. That just seems like, what? Holy. That's so crazy. Time flies. Yeah. Thank God this fucking year has flown by. It really has. Really has. All right. Well, here we go again with another not-so-spooky story. I know I'm paranormal, but look, I learned about this, and I was like, oh, my God, I have to share this. And so, you know what? You do you, boo. I'm doing me. Well, two things. One, you're paranormal and all the things. So it's not just ghosts. It's everything. The conspiracy theories, aliens, all the things. And second of all, it's because you are not OCD in the personality disorder type. You are OCD in the personality trait. So once you get something in your head, you have to fucking do it. Yes, I really do. And it's just one of your personality traits. We all love. (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, this story is scary in its own way. If you were ever in college, especially if you lived on campus, you saw signs for experiments or trials that you could sign up and make money by participating in. Girl, I got so many extra credit points in all my psychology classes for participating in that shit. Yeah, like, I know that I did some for extra credit, but I don't remember doing any for money. Yep. When we were at Southern Miss, what they did was... In your psychology classes, they could give you extra credit, but they didn't pay you. Like, I know I did a couple, but one I did was this six-week yoga class, and they were testing your cortisol levels to see how it impacted your stress. And so you had to do, like, saliva samples at the beginning, maybe in the middle, and at the end, and then they would test the cortisol levels. But they had, like, two variations of yoga. That One was a little more, like, zen. One was a little more physical, Thank God I got the more zen one because I would have fucking died. Because it was, but anyway, but it was two days a week for six fucking weeks. And I did the whole thing. And I got like 20 or 30 extra credit points in that class. Dang. Not like on your average, but like yeah, a fuck ton. Yeah. Well, you better fuck. But then if it was like only like an hour's worth of work, like had to fill out a survey or what have you, then it was only like one point. Yeah. I remember we went to like a computer lab one time together. Probably. But for the most part, it was PhD students and for their dissertations. Yeah. Well, the people who were involved in this experiment will never be able to forget their time. And so what I'm covering is the Stanford Prison Experiment. Oh, shit. Have you never heard of it? Not that I know of. Okay, Psych 101 people. Well, maybe I don't know the name. (laughs) That is very true. Honestly, that's true. Because, <laughs> like, I'm going to get through most of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. This showed that. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That's why you can't do it anymore. Because of blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But it's literally Stanford Prison Experiment says it all. But she won't. She's like, I have no idea. I've never heard of that. <laughs> but I'm going to say, okay, so at Stanford, they had a prison experiment. And she's going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I do. I have heard of this. <laughs> really? Well, everyone, including Carrie, picture it. August 1971. Oh! I I knew you were doing it. I knew. (laughs) She literally pointed to me (laughs) as I was saying it. Oh, gosh. There is an ad in the newspaper for college-aged males that offered $15 per day to participate in an experiment 
about psychological effects of perceived power. And FYI, that would be like getting $95 per day in today's money. For this experiment, they would be modeling themselves after prison life. So there would be guards and prisoners, which would be determined via coin flip. Philip Zimbardo was a psychology professor at Stanford, and he headed up this experiment, and he also served as the superintendent of the mock prison. Like I mentioned, he recruited males only, but they were also predominantly white and middle class. Uh, yeah. It was at a university. Yeah. In 1970. Yeah. And Stanford. Exactly. Well, the applicants underwent exams, background checks to make sure there were no criminal records, mental illness, or medical problems prior to the experiment. After the selection process was completed, there were 24 participants remaining to fulfill the mock prison experiment. All of them understood that it would be a prison simulation and it would last for two weeks. So after the coin flip, 12 became prisoners So nine main prisoners, three like alternates if necessary. And then the other 12 became guards. Again, nine main, three alternates if necessary. Okay, well, there's a flaw in this study right there. Uh Uh-huh. There is never a one-to-one ratio. I mean, there's not even like a 20-to-1 ratio of inmates to corrections officers. Well, they go in different shifts. I'll talk about it. Again, Zimbardo was the superintendent Then his undergraduate research assistant was the warden. So on August 17th, 1971, the nine guys who were picked to play the prisoners were fucking shocked because they were arrested by real police officers and taken to the local police station where they were booked, fingerprinted, and then moved to a holding cell. From there, each one was blindfolded and told to wait. Then they were all transported, still blindfolded, to the mock prison location. When they arrived at the prison location, they were strip searched and deloused with the spray, which Professor Zimbardo said was to illustrate the belief that the men were dirty, they may have germs or lice, just degrading them a step further after the strip search. They were given smocks to wear, which is basically like a loose-fitting muslin dress. Muslin? Yeah. Okay, I watch way too much Project Runway, but that's, like, what they make their patterns out of. Oh. So it's just, like... Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's, like, what they put them in when they're on Suicide Watch or something. Yeah. But I had no idea that's what it was called. They were also given stocking caps to hide their hair in lieu of shaving their head to, again, dehumanize them, like, to take away their individuality. And rubber sandals. That's what they were giving. So if you think about that, uh, no undergarments. Yeah. But again, none of that is atypical of what would actually happen to them in prison. They don't have undergarments in prison? Sometimes not at first. And especially if they are on like suicide watch or something. Mm. Because they could hang themselves. But like, so they have a smock, an open like dress. Yes. And no, no blanket. And they're dangling, dangling? Yeah, with no blanket. Cool. No pillow. No blanket. Just a mattress that cannot be torn. So they're being treated no diff- no worse than, at this point. I yeah. I mean, obviously, hello, this is your story. I'm saying, at this point, they're being treated no worse than someone 
on a suicide watch in a prison. It's good to know that it does follow closely with that because he did have like former prisoners who like served 17 years behind bars, like talk to him about different things. So like he wanted to get it as close to prison as possible. So there's that. They also had a chain placed around one ankle and then it locked. And so it was a symbol of them being incarcerated and no longer having freedom. And Zimbardo said that, you know, it had like a lock that you would lock your diary with. And it looked like a metal chain, like a chain link, you know. Mm -hmm. And so he said what he imagined is that when the guys like turned over in bed or whatever, moved their leg, that lock would hit the other leg, you know, like, so even when you're trying to sleep or whatever, you're reminded that you're not free. Yeah. And the guy's identities were stripped from them, too. They were only to be referred to by their inmate number that was sewn into the smock. And, like, that's it. They no longer had their names for the next two weeks. Okay, so this mock prison was located in the basement of Jordan Hall, which was the psychology building on Stanford's campus. I mean, it's already bad because it's a basement, you know, but... Zimbardo wanted to get everything right, like I said, so he brought in people to help with the configuration and all the things. The basement was 35 feet total and had two fabricated walls for the prison, one at the entrance and one at the cell wall to block observation. It made it like it was one wing, you know, and the observation stuff was the researchers were on the other side of that wall so they could video them, they could hear them whatever, but they couldn't be seen. So this was basically like a walled-up corridor part of the basement. Well, the corridor was known as the yard, and that's the only outside place where the prisoners were allowed to walk, eat, exercise, except when they went down the hallway to the toilet. But they had to be blindfolded so they wouldn't know the way out of the prison. Mm. So there were three cells which held three prisoners, Each was six by nine, and they had three cots, and that was all they could fit in those rooms. Again, the prisoners were not allowed to ever leave the basement. There were no windows or clocks. They couldn't discern time of day, anything. The mock prison did have solitary confinement, which they called the hole, and it's exactly what you think, a dark, small space, basically a closet, It was about two feet wide, two feet deep, and tall enough that they could stand up. However, on the flip side, the guards were assigned to work in three-man teams for eight-hour shifts. It wasn't an equal ratio. Yeah, okay, makes sense. Of course, I, like, simplified that way too fucking much. (laughs) Uh, Duh, they're not there 24 hours a day. But the quote-unquote prisoners are, so, Mm -hmm. I don't know, in my head, I'm an idiot. No, no, it may, I would have done the same thing. So after each shift, the guards were allowed to return to their homes until their next shift. And when they were at the mock prison, they were able to relax in what felt like luxury compared to the cots. Mm -hmm. The guards were able to dress more comfortably, too. They wore khaki shirt and pants from a local military store. And they also had mirrored sunglasses. So like aviators. And that was to prevent eye contact with the prisoners. So it kind of dehumanized that connection. They also were given wooden batons and whistles from 
actual like police academy to establish their authority. For this experiment, the mock guards were instructed to maintain law and order and command the respect of the prisoners by any means necessary, aside from physical violence. So the main thing about this whole experience is that shortly after the experiment started, there was a definite shift in the guards' behavior. Most turned aggressive and abusive towards the prisoners, and in turn, the prisoners became passive and depressed. So we're going to see that play out. One of the ways of controlling the prisoners was doing counts, which we've seen done in movies all the time, where you have to go out of your cells and be counted. Well, the guards also use these counts as a way to familiarize themselves with the prisoner numbers and to get the prisoners to be comfortable with their number too. So when they say their number, they know who they're talking about. You know what I mean? But the key to these counts is that they would be random and at inconvenient times. The first count was at 2.30 a.m., and the prisoners were jarred awake by the sounds of the guards' whistles. They were forced to chant their numbers multiple times, and if someone messed up, they would all have to start again, that kind of thing, like multiple times over and over the first night. So all in all, the first day, there wasn't any major concerns, and everything was pretty much like smooth sailing. And Zimbardo was like, oh shit, this is going to be boring. Nothing's going to happen. However, the second day was anything but calm. That morning, the prisoners showed defiance by removing their stocking caps and ripping off their numbers. Then they pushed their cots against the cell door to barricade themselves in. Well, the night shift guards were still on duty and they were pretty frazzled and frustrated because they didn't know how to react to this quote-unquote, rebellion, and then the prisoners started to taunt them and curse at them, and they just didn't know how to discipline that disrespect. And again, it's the morning of the second day, so the morning crew comes in to relieve them, but the night crew stays on, and they call in those other three, like, reinforcements. So it's a total of nine guards right now. But the next shift guards, they were pretty upset because they're like, y'all were way too lenient and this is what resulted in it. Kind of like, this is all y'all's fault. Yeah. But they all got together and formulated a plan. We're going to fight force with force. So they got fire extinguishers, which were there to be in compliance with the fire safety laws. And they blasted the prisoners with that freezing carbon dioxide. This forced the prisoners to retreat from the doors because the streams from the extinguishers were skin-chilling. Well, this gave the guards enough room to break into each cell, which they did, and then they stripped the prisoners naked and took the beds out. Shit. Then they forced the person they thought was the ringleader into the hole. And, of course, the rebellion highlighted that the guards had to figure out how to control the nine prisoners better. Because there's only three guards per shift. So what they decided they needed to do was also use psychological tactics, as well as the physical ones they were already implementing. So they decided to designate one of the cells as a privilege cell. The three prisoners who were least involved in the rebellion were given more leniency and privileges in the form of getting their uniforms and beds back. And they could bathe and brush their teeth. 
The other prisoners were not allowed to do any of these things. Also, the privileged prisoners were allowed to eat special food in front of the other prisoners who had temporarily lost their privilege of eating. What the fuck? You cannot take their food away. Right? Well, so they were like, hmm, maybe this will cause a rift in the prisoners' solidarity. Then, for more psychological warfare, after only half a day of this treatment, the guards shook things up by switching some of the prisoners around. So they placed some of the good prisoners into the bad cells, quote-unquote, and took some of the bad prisoners and put them into the good cell. And so this confused the prisoners and caused the ringleaders to think that some of the privileged cell inmates must be informers. And so that just, like, escalated the distrust amongst the prisoners. Zimbardo later said that their ex-convict consultant told them that real guards use a similar tactic to break up prisoner alliances. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of made him happy, like, hey, like, we didn't do that. The guards did that on their own. Yeah. And it's kind of cool that they came up with something that's already being implemented. Yeah. Well, after this, things got more nasty. The guards had grown closer due to the rebellion, and it seemed to change their mindset from just being an experiment to something that could be dangerous if they didn't get control of the situation. So in turn, the guards were more intent on harassing and intimidating the prisoners. The guards made sure that the prisoners knew that the guards were in total control and that the prisoners were totally dependent on them. They even used going to the bathroom as a privilege. So if a guard wanted to, he could deny it. What the fuck? Yeah. Also, lights out was at 10 p.m. every night, and after this, they had to remain locked in their cells. This meant that they were forced to use the bathroom in their cells, so they would be given a bucket to pee and shit in. Wow. Usually, the prisoners could empty the buckets out, but sometimes the guards wouldn't allow them to, which made the whole mock prison smell shitty. Literally. Literally. Yes. But they felt that that added to the whole degradation thing, like degradation part of the experiment. Another way the guards were able to control the quote-unquote prisoners is if they were a smoker, like prisoner number 5401, they would regulate his opportunity to smoke. So if he, you know, acted up, mouthed off anything, he couldn't smoke for a longer period of time, couldn't do whatever. You know what I mean? Hell, as an ex-smoker with a bladder problem, I don't know which is fucking worse. Right? Well, the prisoners were taunted with insults, petty orders. They were given just, like, that fucking boring work to do. You know, just mm -hmm. stupid, busy work that pisses me off. That's the damn truth. Like, that really is. I'd be like, yep, you broke me. You broke me on this. And soon the prisoners adopted prison-like behavior where they knew they were dependent on the guards for everything. So they tried to find ways to please the guards. Like, they would try to tattle on the other one to be like, you know, I'll be your informant. Do this. You know, like, so can I go pee right now? Right. Whatever, you know. It's crazy how quickly this took place. Mm-hmm. Push-ups were a popular form of physical punishment, and one of the guards took it a step further 
literally, because he would step on the prisoners' backs while they did the push-ups. Wow. Or he made prisoners sit on the backs of the fellow prisoners while they did their push-ups. And once, one of the tough guards, he had one guy doing push-ups while another inmate sang Amazing Grace. And if either of them faltered, both of them had to start over. And, you know, like, just shit like that. Yeah. And they have this on tape. Like, you know, they have video of this and stuff. And it's just, it's silly when you look at it. But then when you think about it, that these people signed up for this. But then, like, it's this college-age kid singing Amazing Grace in a fucking smock with no underwear on. Mm -hmm. Like, a stocking on his head while this other one's having to do push-ups. You know, like... To be able to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Like, for no fucking reason. It's just like, what the fuck? And they have to do it. They have to do it. Well, Zimbardo said he initially was like, oh, my God, push-ups? These are so, like, that's so juvenile. But later, he learned that push-ups were often used as a form of punishment in the Nazi concentration camps, too. Wow. Yeah. That one, like, tough guard... He called out one of the prisoners. He, I can't even remember, but he had his arms up for some reason during one of the counts. And so he called him Frankenstein. And then he was like, you look more like the bride of Frankenstein and shit. Like, you know, just again, fucking with him. So then he said, walk over to like inmate, whatever, walk to him like Frankenstein. And so he had to hold his arms out and walk. And he was like, no, 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 no. That's not how Frankenstein walked. Start over. You know, and he'd have to go back and try to do it again and again and again. And then he would have to get closer to the inmate, closer to the inmate. And then another guard pushed the other inmate into him. And the tough guard made Frankenstein say that he loved inmate blah, blah, blah. Like, I love inmate 425. I love inmate 425. Like, just degrading them. Yeah. I literally wrote... Just degrading things like that. Wow. <laughs> 36 hours into the experiment, prisoner 8612, Doug Corpy, he was locked into the closet, and it was mainly because of the rebellion. But he started just to get overwhelmed with everything. And he wanted to leave, and Zimbardo was like, hey, why don't you go and be my informant? And I'll make sure that the guards don't tease you like they take it easy on you. You go back in there. You'll have an easier time. Just stay in. And so Doug went back and he, like on account, he was like, you can't leave. They won't let you fucking leave here. And so that kind of further made them think, shit, we are prisoners. We're stuck here. Yeah. You know? Well, Doug, like, just could not take it anymore. And so he started screaming and everything. And so... He started shouting that he needed a doctor. He said, I'm so fucked up inside. I feel really fucked up inside. You don't know. I just got to go to a doctor, anything. I mean, Jesus Christ, I'm burning up inside. Don't you know? I can't stay in there. I'm fucked up. I don't know how to explain it. I'm all fucked up inside and I won't out. I won't out right now. Holy shit. And like he like screams at, at like the end. It's like, yeah. What the fuck did you just say? Like uh, captions, please. You know? Yeah. And so... Oh, poor thing. Yeah. So he was let go. 
And in total, three got changed out, but then like two were talked into state, you know, like all the things. It was just, they were having some mental breakdowns up in there. But to complete the prison experience, they did a visiting hours for parents and friends of the prisoners. But there was fear that when they saw the mock prison and the state it was in, they would be like, oh, fuck this. Like, you're going home with me right now. Mm -hmm. Like, no, this is shitty. So all the prisoners were able to shower, shave, and were groomed. They all had to clean their cells to get rid of any of the smell. And to play the big con, there was a big dinner that everyone was fed. They were able to enjoy music over the intercom system. And there was even a greeter for visitors at the registration desk. And you can tell it was a male-ran experiment because it was a, quote-unquote, an attractive former Stanford cheerleader who was the greeter. Oh, Jesus. I'm like, okay. Like, oh, Oh, because that makes it all better. Yeah, I'm like, okay, yeah. But Zimbardo said something was super interesting, like, When the visitors got there, they were like, oh, okay, this is all just, like, good fun. It's, you know, silly. But they were forced to check in, made to wait at least 30 minutes, and then told that only two visitors could see one prisoner for 10 minutes per visit, and it would be in the presence of a guard. And any parents who were visiting had to speak with the warden about their son's case before they can meet with their son. And, like, because they all had, like, trumped up charges, you know, like, burglary or whatever. So, like, they had to talk to them like it was real. Yeah. So, yeah, people complained and they thought these rules were dumb, but they complied. So, Zimbardo said that basically they became players in the simulation, too. And he was so condescending because he was like, you know, they complied because they were just being, quote, unquote, Good middle-class adults. Fuck you, piece of shit, Mm motherfucker. But I'm like, where's the lie? Because they all have to keep up appearances. You know, like, no one wants to... Yeah, but that's not necessarily why. No, I know. That's why I said he was, like, condescending and shit. Yeah, but you also said, where's the lie? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that they did that just because they're middle-class. I mean... They did it probably so that they could see their fucking kid, so they could make sure they're okay, for, so they could do all those things. But they could, like, because they, there's no legality of them not seeing them. I know, but if someone says to you, this is where your thing is, they're participating in this experiment, this is what you have to do to be able to see them, you're going to do it, because they told you these are the rules. I know, and because you're going no to one's going to buck the system, and that's what he's saying. Like, No, no, but I'm saying it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that they're middle class. That's where he's being a fucking fuckface. If you tell someone, this is how the system's set up, yeah, they're going to say, that's fucking stupid, but in order to get done what they need to get done, they're still going to do the system. Zimbardo recalled that there were some parents who were upset by the appearance of their son. And they said that he looked in distressed and highly fatigued, but they still privately spoke with Zimbardo as a superintendent. Like they still complied with the simulation. He said that the one mother was like, I've never seen my son looking so bad. He shifted blame from the situation to her son. Like, what's the matter with your boy? You know? Yeah. And then 
he looked at the father and was like, don't you think your boy can handle this? Oh. Mm -hmm. And so the father quickly responded, of course he can. He's a real tough kid. He's a leader. And so then he told his wife, like, we've wasted enough of the superintendent's time. Like, let's go. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And so heaven forbid that their son's mental health come before the appearance of being a strong man and shit, you know? Anyway, so after Visitor's Day, there is a rumor of another escape plan. One of the guards overheard that Doug Corpy, the guy who had to be released after his breakdown, was going to come back with friends and release all the prisoners. So the guards in Zimbardo huddled together and came up with this elaborate plan to like squash the escape thing, where they would take down the whole prison, they blindfolded the prisoners, led them upstairs, and then Zimbardo was going to be down there waiting to be like, you're too late, like, They've already been moved kind of thing, but it never came to fruition. But everyone had already done everything, so they were pissed because they had to redo everything for no for no reason. So that just made the guards step up their humiliation tactics. They started to force the prisoners to clean the toilets with their bare hands. <gasps> they started to demand more push-ups, too. They added jumping jacks and other physical activities, and they increased counts to last several hours each time. Zimbardo invited a Catholic priest who had worked as a prison chaplain to come and give his opinion on how realistic their mock prison was and everything, and then he would interview each prisoner individually. Well, Zimbardo said he monitored it by hidden cameras that they had around the prison, and he was amazed that half of the prisoners did not introduce themselves with their names, but only their inmate number. So he said that they had really settled into their submissive role as a prisoner. And so the priest was obviously part of this simulation too, because after some more small talk, he would ask them what their plans were to get out of there. So some of the prisoners would just like slow blink, and then he would explain the only way you get out of prison is with the lawyer's help. But have no fear, I can get you in touch with a good one. And some of the prisoners actually took him up on this offer, like that was the only way they were going to be able to leave. Then there was this prisoner number 819, and he did not want to speak to the priest. He was feeling sick, and he had started to refuse to eat. And he was like, no, I need to see a doctor, not a fucking priest. Well, eventually... They talked him to come out of his cell and talk to the priest and the superintendent, a.k.a. Zimbardo, just to see, like, okay, what kind of doctor do you need? What, like, tell us all your feelings. Well, he soon started to break down and cry hysterically. So Zimbardo took the chain off of his foot, took the stocking off of his head, and told him to go rest in the room that was adjacent to, like, the quote-unquote prison yard. And he agreed that he would get him some food and then take him to a doctor. But outside, again, they're right outside of a room. It's a corridor, basically. One of the guards had lined up all the other prisoners and had them chant aloud, Prisoner 819 is a bad prisoner. Because of what Prisoner 819 did, my cell is a mess, Mr. Correctional Officer. And they shouted this like over and over and over and over. Well, the inmate, 819, he started sobbing again, like just crying. And because he could hear them chanting that. 
Well, so Zimbardo was like, you know what? Just go now. Like, it's not going to get better for you. Like, just leave. And he was like, I can't. I can't because they're going to think I'm a bad prisoner. Like, I need to go back and prove that I'm not bad. So Zimbardo didn't know what else to do. He leaned down and said, listen, you are not 819. You are, insert his name, and my name is Dr. Zimbardo. I am a psychologist, not a prison superintendent, and this is not a real prison. This is just an experiment, and those are students, not prisoners, just like you. You can go. And he said all of a sudden, he just stopped crying and looked up at him like like a child had just woken up from a bad dream and was like, okay. And like, you know, like it just had stopped and it like snapped out of it. And that was that. He left. What the hell? Well, they called and recruited one of the standby prisoners. Prisoner 416 was his new identity. And unlike all the other ones, he came in to like a full on shit show. Mm-hmm. All the other ones had, you know, it ramped had, up. Yeah. Do you know what those like alternate prisoners were doing in the meantime? Like, were they in like a fake prison or were they nope. just like living their best life? Just living their life. Okay. Well, he's like, what the fuck? But the quote unquote old timer prisoners were like, you can't quit. Like, you can only get out of here. Like, if you go crazy, you know? And, like, they just talk to him, like, you're stuck. This is a real prison, you know? And he's like, what the fuck? Well, so, prisoner 416 coped by going on a hunger strike. Because he was like, I need to be released. I do not want to do this. And this is what I'm going to do. Well, he said that they would, like, try to hold his mouth and, like, shove, like, a hot dog down it to make him eat and stuff. And didn't work. And so, they threw him in the hole. And they threw him in the hole for like three hours. And then a little bit longer. Still, he refused to eat. Well, then this should have been like, hey, if he does this, we could all do this and like rebel against him again. You know, however, the other prisoners were like, no, he's a fucking troublemaker. Like, Mm -hmm. uh uh-uh. And so the quote unquote tough guard was like, all right. We can let prisoner 416 out of the hole if y'all are willing to give up your blanket so you would only sleep on your mattress or he's going to have to stay in solitary confinement all night. And it was like all one person, I think, voted that he could come out. Everyone else was like, nah, I vote to keep my blanket, Mr. Correctional Officer. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like, you know, you would think that they would try to band together or what. Not, they were like, nope. He can stay up in there. Yeah. The next day, all the prisoners who thought they had grounds for being paroled were chained together and then individually brought before a parole board. And it was composed of people who were strangers to them. So it was like department secretaries, grad students, And then it was headed by the top prison consultant, the one who had spent like 16 years behind bars. So some of the prisoners, like they would ask, okay, would you forfeit all the money you've earned up to this point if we parole you? Like you can leave, but you won't have any of your money. 
And they were like, yes. And it's like, no, no, no. You, like, you honestly could leave mm-hmm. and still have your money. But, like, they yeah, they weren't thinking that. They're like, yes, I need to get paroled. Like, just whatever I have to do, I want out of here. Yeah. And they said that when they ended the hearings, they would tell them, like, go back to your cell while we consider your request. And every prisoner did, even though they could have just simply quit the experiment. Right. Again, Zimbardo was like, it just shows how powerless they felt. And, you know, it was just that power shift had happened and it was there. It was ingrained in them already. Well, during the parole hearings, they also saw their prison consultant. He started to badger the inmates on why they should be paroled and shit like that. And afterwards, he felt sick at his stomach and he got up and he was like, I have to go. And so they questioned him why, and he was like, I just became what I hated all that time. My own tormentor, who had previously rejected my parole request for 16 years, I just became him. But the thing is, I liked it, and I got to go. Yeah, because he got power that he's never had before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was like just that one, like, what, maybe two hours? Yeah. But again, he could see it and was like, nope, got to get out of here. Can't do this. But on the fifth night, so think about this. This is now just the fifth night. Things changed. A lady named Christina Maslock, she had graduated from Stanford with her doctorate in psychology, and she had agreed to do some subject interviews for the experiment. She went in the night before just to familiarize herself with the ins and outs of everything, and soon she found herself sick to her stomach. When she was there, she was standing in the hall with some of the guys who were guards. They were all waiting to start their shift, and she said that she had a conversation with what she described as a, quote, charming, funny, smart young man. After the new shift started, she went to watch the video camera of the quote-unquote prison yard to monitor it. And she remembered that some of the researchers had told her that there was this one tough guard and the prisoners had nicknamed him John Wayne due to him being tough and like he had like the Southern accent and all of that. Well, Christina was like, hey, point out John Wayne to me. And she was left speechless because John Wayne was that charming, funny, smart guy she had talked to earlier. Wow. And later, she got to see him in action. And this is a direct quote from Christina. She said, This man had been transformed. He was talking in a different accent, a southern accent, which I hadn't recalled at all. He moved differently. And the way he talked was different, not just in the accent, but in the way he was interacting with the prisoners. It was like seeing Jekyll and Hyde. It really took my breath away. Several prisoners engaged in a debate with John Wayne, she said, in which they accused him of like enjoying his job. And he said he wasn't really like that. He's just playing a role, you know. And so one prisoner challenged this, noting that the guard had tripped him earlier while he was taking him down the hall to the bathroom. There was no researchers around to see it. So it was like... No, that was the guard's true nature. Like, no one was there to see it. It's not like they were doing it for the researchers. Like, that was him, you know. But John Wayne was like, you know what? 
if I let up any, my role wouldn't remain powerful. So later that evening, Christina had a breaking point. She watched as the guards lined up and escorted the prisoners, all chained together, and they had paper bags placed over their heads and their hands on each other's shoulders as a guide to the bathroom before bedtime. And she couldn't help but cry. And due to her strong emotional response, of course, her fellow researchers teased her. What the fuck? Mm -hmm. Well, Christina was dating Zimbardo. Conflict of interest much? Mm Mm-hmm. And they ended up marrying later. But he asked her, like, what's your opinion? You know? And he thought she was going to be like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Look at the power shift and all of this. But she didn't hold back. She said, quote, it's terrible what you were doing to these boys. Like, it breaks my heart. Yeah. And she was the only one out of 50 or more outsiders who had seen the mock prison to question the experiment's morality. And so that was the final night of the experiment. They did not last the full two weeks. Zimbardo said there was two reasons why he called it off. Christina opened his eyes to what the experiment had developed into, you know, where shit, like... Well, because he had become part of a simulation himself. Yes, he did. And he admits that. And also, he said that the researchers had learned through videotapes that the guards were escalating their abuse of prisoners in the middle of the night when they thought no researchers were watching and the experiment was, quote unquote, off. So, like, their boredom and, you know, trying to be inventive and, like, up the next one and everything, they had gotten more degrading and got kind of pornographic with some of their stuff, like making them hump each other or Uh, something like that. Okay. Yeah. According to Zimbardo and his colleagues, the Stanford prison experiment demonstrates the powerful role that situations can play in human behavior because the guards were placed in power. They began to behave more cruel, more aggressive than they would normally be and then again the prisoners became more passive submissive i would say more so than passive yeah you know because they were still fighting the fight like they were still trying to go against the guards to be passive is not the right word but yeah i mean you get what i'm saying yeah well after the experiment was terminated zimbardo interviewed the participants and so i just have a few things he said most of them felt very involved and committed to it And he said that one guard said, I was surprised at myself. I made them call each other names, clean toilets out with their bare hands. I practically considered the prisoners cattle, and I kept thinking I had to watch out for them in case they tried something. And then another guard was like, acting authoritatively can be fun. Power can be a great pleasure. And then another one said, during the inspection, I went into cell two to mess up a bed which a prisoner had just made, and he grabbed me and yelling that he had just made it, and he wasn't going to let me mess it up. And he grabbed me by the throat, and although he was laughing, I was pretty scared. So the guy said, I lashed out with my stick and hit him in the chin, although not very hard, but I freed myself, and I became very angry. So that just shows, like, no, it was, it got real for them. Yeah, well, because he went in there to fuck that bed up mm-hmm. on purpose. Mm-hmm. But there were some guards that were, like, 
oh my God, I behaved in that way? I didn't know I was capable of that. Yeah. And then some of the prisoners couldn't re- couldn't believe that they were submissive or became dependent on the guards and stuff. You know, they're like, no, we're assertive in our daily lives in this. And, you know, they just conform to a role. After the experiment, this is what 416 had to say. He's the one who went on the hunger strike. Mm-hmm. This is what he said. I began to feel that I was losing my identity, that the person that I called Clay, the person who put me in this place, the person who volunteered to go into this prison, because it was a prison to me, it's still a prison to me. I don't regard it as an experiment or a simulation because it was a prison run by psychologists instead of being run by the state. I began to feel that identity. The person that I was that had decided to go to prison was distant from me, was remote until I finally wasn't that. I was 416. I was really my number. And he was the latecomer. Yeah, he was only in there, what, two days? Yeah. But he came into it full force. So true. You know, so it was just like, he was living his life and then we're like, whoa, what? They found that the guards had, they fell into three different categories. There would be like the good guards, some that were tough but fair, and then some were that were cruel. The good ones were the ones that like never really got on to anyone and like would, you know, try to give you like an extra piece of bread or, you know, like whatever, try to be your friend. Then the other ones that were tough, but they wouldn't, you know, make a prisoner sit on you while you're doing push-ups. Then there were the John Waynes. Well, the guard known as John Wayne said that he was acting apart. He modeled himself after Cool Hand Luke, and he wanted to do his own experiment within the experiment to see how far he could go before another guard tried to stop him or the prisoners refusing to take his punishment anymore. And that never happened. No one ever told him to calm down his tactics All the prisoners hated him, but feared him, and no one ever spoke up in defiance or defense against him. I will say, so, Zimbardo wrote a book called The Lucifer Effect, and he had this quote, Only a few people were able to resist the situational temptations to yield to power and dominance while maintaining some semblance of morality and decency. Obviously, I was not among that noble class because he had become more of the superintendent than the researcher. Mm -hmm. And he said, like, if he was to do it again, he would have to either be one or the other. Yeah. Because he lost sight of it. And, like, he really was thinking only as, like, prison stuff, not even as, like, ooh, research at all. So a lot of people criticize this experiment because of things like, you know, ethics and all the things. And they say that the guards were coached to be more evil than like Zimbardo lets on. But he does say that they were debriefed the day before. Like, again, do everything you can to make them feel less than, you know. So, yeah. And people know what guards are like. You know right, what I mean? Right. They all watch Shawshank. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the future. Yes. But I still think this is important because it shows that 
under supervision of someone in power, like you said, people are willing to abide by whatever rules that powerful person sets. Mm -hmm. And so they've used it to talk about the Nazi concentration camp. They've talked about the torture at Abu Ghraib, all of that. What Zimbardo says is too much on the situation. You know, he's like, it's the situation that causes it. Like, those people wouldn't be that way in life, but they were put in that situation, and so they were that way. And it's like, eh, there's still some personality that Mm -hmm. goes into that. Not everyone is going to be to that level, you know? And so some people say that he shouldn't have split them into guards and prisoners to see, like, who kind of rose above and whatever. But, again, he was trying to do prison. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. Well, it definitely speaks to, like, fuck faces who, like, victim blame and all of that, people who have been kidnapped. Because it's like, okay, well, this happened to these people who were not in an actual, like, traumatic event. Now, was it traumatic? Yes. Was it a simulation? Yes. It, you know, and it became mm-hmm. a traumatic event. But someone who is fucking kidnapped, it's trauma from the jump. Mm-hmm. And so for these people in this simulation, this experiment, to go this far and it only be able to last five days, think about people who have been kidnapped for weeks, months, years, decades. Yeah. And what that must be like to their psyche. Yeah. Oh, I will say that Doug Corpy, the one who was like, I got to get out of here. Mm -hmm. He later said that that was all fake and that he needed to get out because he needed to study for the GRE. Okay. And so some of that I'm like, okay, maybe. But also, like, he went along with it for a little bit on some documentary stuff and Mm -hmm. all that. And I feel like he just didn't know this because, like, this is, like, a huge experiment thing. Like, it's, again, anything that comes up, it's, like, the Stanford prison experiment shows blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he just didn't want to be known as the one who had to be let go. Right. The one who broke. And he's like, no, anyone could hear that I I was joking. I was... Doing all of this. And it's like, I mean, you might have wanted to get out. But then, like, why, though? Like, yeah, you might have wanted to study for your GRE. But, like, you signed up for this. And right. then You knew how long it was supposed to last. Yeah. You knew when you were supposed to study for the GRE. So, um, don't buy it, buddy. Yeah. I'm just like, okay, cool. Good try. Good mm-hmm. try. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of people who did participate in this went on to do stuff with psychology and things like that. And um, one's a teacher, and I can't remember, it was he was a prisoner, but one's a teacher, and it's like an inner city school. He said that, like, he honestly looks at some of his students, and he's like, it reminds me of us and that experiment because we were filling a role. Like, yeah, we had potential to be a guard. I had potential to be a guard, but I got the prisoner and I filled that role as a submissive person and, you know, like whatever. And these people who are in inner city schools or, you know, like 
have, they face different things in life and all of that. It's like, it's kind of like life assigns them a role. And so some people submit to that. Mm -hmm. Some people don't. Some people rise above it and... Buck the system and all the things. But clearly that's the exception, not the rule. Yeah. And so it's just like, yeah, the experiment is faulty for sure. But I feel like, I mean, there's still a foundation there of... Yeah, if you give people power and the and to say like you have power and you have to control this, like you don't know what you're gonna do. Like we hope we're not evil people, but but the same with any of my stories, your stories, you never know what you're gonna do until you're in that situation. Yeah, you truly don't. Yeah. Well, I fucking loved this story. Yay! I'm glad. You know I was gonna love it. Yeah. And no, I didn't know it. <laughs> I must have been absent that day. <laughs> oh, God. Well, yeah, I like saw it on YouTube and I was like, what? This is crazy. And also, if you think about it, though, the prisoners got paid less, if you think about it, because they had to stay in, like, quote unquote, mm-hmm. character the whole time, do this. The other people worked in shifts, got That's to go so home. True. That's so true. I'm like, you know I would pick a fucking prisoner. Well, you I, didn't, they didn't pick it. They got flipped. I would flip a coin. That's mm-hmm. the worst thing I can do. Now I have a rigged coin. Oh. Well, I loved yours, and hopefully you love mine. Since this week is Thanksgiving, I was like, got to do a Thanksgiving murder. Thanks to Morgan in the Facebook group, who was like, you should do a Thanksgiving crime this week. So I am. But before we get into the Thanksgiving Day murder... We got to go over a little bit of the familial history. So picture it. July 1973. Salwa Marriage Adams had just ended a divorce with her husband. It was a rough divorce. When they first got married over 19 years ago, she was a mezzo-soprano and had a pretty good opera career, right? Well, when she fell in love and married her husband, she became a stay-at-home wife and mom and all the things. So she had given up her career in the opera for her husband and for her future kids. The husband was a pilot, and after 19 years of marriage and two kids, he had an affair and left her for a flight attendant. And some people just fit the stereotype. You're not wrong. Not long after the final hearing of the divorce, she called her husband over well, at this point, ex-husband, she called him over and was like, look, we need to talk about the kids, like, and just need you to come over. When she brought him in, I think he noticed that the kids weren't around. They had a 14-year-old boy and a 10-year-old girl, but what he didn't know was that she had them wrapped up in the car. What? Yes. They were still alive. But when he came in, she pulls out a 38 caliber revolver and shoots him four times in the chest. Also, it was in the master bedroom. Poetic? I think so. <laughs> then she left from the bedroom, went to the car, and brought Jack inside, who was the 14-year-old boy. She then emptied the rest of the bullets into Jack. Oh my gosh. She then had to reload the gun and went and got their daughter, 10-year-old Melissa Ann. She took her into another room and shot and killed her as well. 
as soon as she had killed her entire family, she took a bunch of barbiturates and later died by suicide at the South Miami Hospital. Whoa. Yes. So the family we're going to talk about has a lot of history. Who's remaining? Well, Salwa had a brother. Michael marriage married Carol. They had twin daughters, Carla and Lisa, and a son named Paul. I've heard a lot of different pronunciations for this last name. It's spelled M-E-R-H-I-G-E. Well, I googled pronunciation, and there was a, like, what are those things called? Judge? And it had, like, pronounced marriage beside it. So that's what we're going to go with, because that seemed legit. And as soon as I, like, saw marriage and I saw it written, I was like, oh, that t- that makes total sense. But I kept being like, Merhige. But, <laughs> like, all kinds of crazy stuff. So clearly the marriage family had some trauma in the past. But all in all, they were doing okay after the family annihilation. We're going to talk a little bit more about the son, Paul. Paul was pretty well liked growing up. He was a football player in high school. I think he was the kicker. He played baseball and soccer. He went to a private school because the family lived in Miami. He was just overall this cute, athletic, and smart guy that everyone loved. As he got older, though, into his later teens, he started having some difficulty with mental illness. He started exhibiting symptoms of OCD, and in the truest sense of the word, not in like the flippant way that people use it colloquially now. Initially, it started with more like self-harm, suicidal ideations with his like intrusive thoughts that came along with his OCD. It was like, well, what if I jumped? Well, what if I didn't jump? Well, what, you know, and, and the rituals that went along with those intrusive thoughts. But then it became about his family. What if I kill them? One psychologist named Dr. Stephen Alexander said that when Paul thinks, what if I kill them? And the thought passes like through his mind, but it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back until it's kind of just settled in the OCD makes it worse because it gives him an excuse to keep coming back over and over and over to the idea. The psychologist talked about how this idea eventually becomes more concrete because it starts developing a plan. I feel like you don't have to be a psychologist to think this. And I feel like you don't have to have OCD for that to happen either. I feel like that's Everyone, and or maybe the people that I'm thinking of had OCD. I don't know. But just anytime, it's like, oh my God, my mom, I'm going to kill her. And then, like Ed Kemper. And then it's, yeah, I'm going to kill her. This is how I could do it. But you know what I mean? Like, you think it, and then you're like, nah, okay. But he could have had OCD in the rituals that he performed with the people that he was killing. That's what I'm saying. Like, they, the, the people that I'm thinking of could have had OCD, and I just don't know that. But, like, anytime I have a thought, I do build off of it, you know, so. But you don't build off of a thought to kill your family in the way that he did. Yeah. There becomes a point where intrusive thoughts are just that, intrusive thoughts, and they dissipate after they, you know, make their kind of run through your brain. Yeah. I guess I'm just fixated on, like, 
if they were trying, I mean, again, I'm just assuming that he's the one who killed them on Thanksgiving, but if they're trying to like pin it on his OCD or whatever, if you are thinking those negative thoughts and you act on it, I feel like you're going to act on it no matter what. Like, yeah, I agree with that. Like there's a certain kind of person, you know, there's certain kind of people who have those thoughts and they're serious, Mm -hmm. you know, and it, they don't all have the same mental illness. Well, again, intrusive thoughts versus thoughts. You know what I mean? Yeah. But he became more violent towards himself and his family. At one point, he had actually shot himself in an attempt to die by suicide. I never saw where he shot himself, like as far as like the part of the body. And some of the stuff that I listened to alluded to the fact that it wasn't truly an attempt you know, I'm making this up, but like he shot himself in the elbow, not his hand. You know, who are we to judge or to say or whether it was a legitimate suicide attempt or not? It doesn't fucking matter. He shot himself. He had a lot of threats against his sisters. He was pretty high achieving in high school, but then when it came to college, he floundered. And his sisters continued to grow and be highly accomplished. And he wasn't. And again, he was dealing with mental illness. And and at this point, his parents are completely supporting him financially. He lives independently, like in an apartment. But his parents are paying all of the bills. There is this one kind of weird thing, though. At one point, he and one of his sisters both had restraining orders against one another. But then they just both kind of dropped them. Like, it was literally almost like mom and dad were like, guys, guys. Drop your restraining orders. You know, I don't know how much money they come from, but I feel like if the parents were able to support him financially in the way that they did, they weren't hurting for money. You know, so it was almost like a keep up appearances. Everybody drop your restraining orders now. You know, that's just kind of the vibe that I got from that issue. On Thanksgiving Day, November 2009, The marriage family was attending Thanksgiving at the Sittens' home in like an upscale, gated community in Jupiter, Florida. Okay, so there's quite a bit of people in this story. So I'm going to do my best to like say like the brother of blah, blah, blah kind of versus names because that gets really confusing to me. When I was working on this, it was like I needed a freaking dry erase board for like a family tree and names. Did you know that a dry erase board is the most remarkable invention ever? Get the fuck out of here with that. (laughs) I saw it as a meme. (laughs) (laughs) You've been waiting a long time to use that one, huh? No, it was today. Damn. (laughs) So talk about synchronicity. Oh, God. There she goes again. (laughs) The Sittens... And it's S-I-T-T-O-N. So I've seen, again, different pronunciations about that. But from what I gathered, that's the correct. The Sittens and the marriage family were cousins. So the house belonged to Jim and Muriel Sitton. Muriel Sitton was the cousin to the marriage family. Okay, so here we go with our family tree. Also in attendance of Thanksgiving was Muriel's mother, Her name was Raymond Joseph, but it's Raymond with an E on the end, so I don't know if I'm not churching that up enough. It might be fancy. I think it's French, which means it's like Raymond. 
<laughs> what did I say it was? Ramonde. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's older, like in her 70s. Her husband, Dr. Anton Joseph, and then, of course, the marriage family. That included the parents that we talked about already, Michael and Carol. Both of their daughters were there, the twins. Carla, who was not married. Lisa, who was Lisa Knight, she was married to Patrick. Lisa was pregnant. And the Sitton's daughter, Michaela. So that was the plan for Thanksgiving Day. Over the week before Thanksgiving, Paul kept calling his parents, being like, what are y'all doing? Where are you going? Okay, whose house are you going to again? Where? Okay, I think I'm going to come. I may not come. I don't know. It, very wishy-washy. So they didn't actually know if he was coming. I, I feel like, honestly, nor did they really care if he was coming. But last minute that day, he was like, okay, okay, I'm coming. Can you send me the address and tell me how to get there? When Paul was on his way, his mother... Carol actually said to one of his sisters, I sure hope he's not on his way to kill us. Oh, shit. Talk about foreshadowing the foreskin. Right. And the daughter says, you know, like, I actually thought that too. And the mom was like, don't tell your dad. He'll be so upset. Oh, my gosh. When Paul gets there, they have a great time. They have their Thanksgiving dinner. Everything's normal. Michaela, who was six, was going to be in a upcoming performance of the Nutcracker for Christmas. And so they were practicing some of her songs, singing, all the things, right? Michaela wrote little cards for everyone saying how thankful she was for each of them, strung them up on a clothesline. You know, they had a day of it, right? After a while, Michaela went to bed and everything was kind of winding down when all of a sudden, Paul pulled out a gun and began shooting. The first thing he did was he shot his aunt, Raymond Joseph. Again, she was 76. He shot her once in the shoulder. And then her husband, Dr. Joseph, fell down and was cowering over her, trying to protect her and stop the bleeding. Paul walked over there, held a gun to her chest, and fired it again. Oh my gosh. After he killed his elderly aunt, he then went to his sister's. He had always had a tumultuous relationship with them where, you know, it's alleged that, again, how I mentioned before, they were these high-achieving sisters who were doing all these great things, and he maybe felt like that should have been him because that's who he was in high school, and then with all of his issues with mental illness, he couldn't hold down a job, couldn't take care of himself, you know, all of that, and so he was bitter towards his sisters. He then turned his gunfire on both of his sisters, and remember, Lisa was pregnant. Paul then shot his brother-in-law, Patrick, who was married to Lisa. Initially, I think that he thought that he killed Patrick, but spoiler alert, Patrick was in critical condition in the hospital for a few days after, but eventually survived the attack. There was another man there. His name was Clifford Gabera. I'm not exactly sure his connection. I couldn't find anything that had that. So I'm assuming some sort of family friend. He was grazed by a bullet, but survived. At this point, Paul has now injured two people, killed three. He reloads his gun and he says to them, I've been waiting 20 years to do this. After he reloaded his gun, he walked down the hallway to Michaela's room. No, I thought like she would be safe. No, he shot her 
five times in her bed. Five times? Five times. She was his final victim of his shooting massacre. And when he was on his way to Michaela's room to kill her, Michaela's father was doing everything he could to save her life. He literally was running around and tried to break through the window from the outside to save her. That's so fucking sad. And then he left. So why didn't he kill his parents? I don't know. I don't think his beef was with his parents. I think his beef was with his sisters. I don't know why the aunt. I don't know why he killed his aunt. But I think his issues were with his sister. And then through speculation, through a bunch of different articles, they say that they really don't think that he had any intention on killing Michaela until she was performing in the center of attention and she was singing and all of that, getting ready for her Nutcracker performance. They think that he was jealous of her at that moment in the same way that he had been jealous of his sisters for so long. And it just was triggering to him, for lack of a better word. And so he decided to kill her too. So why did he shoot the friend of the family and graze him? And You know what I mean? I don't know if maybe he was trying to protect someone. I don't know. Yeah. I need this to be a movie so I can figure out how it was. You think that we would know exactly what happened, given that there were so many people there that survived. After that, Paul was on the run. He was on the run for almost five weeks before he was finally found by police. And that was only because he was featured on America's Most Wanted. He'd been holed up in this hotel when the owner saw him, his picture on America's Most Wanted, and was like, holy fuck, that's the guy in 2B. Like, uh, he's here. To be or not to be the killer. Okay. <laughs> also, that's so classic. That the hotel person is the one who was, one, watching America's Most Wanted. Yes, thank you, John Walsh. Right? And was like, holy shit. Right? Well, police do some digging, and they end up finding out that about a week or two before the murders, Paul had actually taken $2,000 of his money out to buy weapons. Then he had $12,000 of his money taken out that he was using to live off of when he was on the run. So that's why I say I think his family had some money because, I mean, he just got 14000 I mean, seriously? Initially, prosecutors were seeking the death penalty, but he ended up pleading guilty and was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences. But that's not where it ends. It was a bit of a shit show after that um, in the family. Everyone blamed everyone, and everyone sued everyone oh my gosh the family turned i mean it was like this tragedy ripped them apart in more ways than one the sittens sued the marriages saying that they knew that he was dangerous and they shouldn't allow him to come then the marriages countersued saying no if you thought he was that dangerous then you shouldn't have let him come you should have said no and by the by you're also for defamation. And so they all ended up being tossed in court. And the end of the story is that Paul Michael marriage is serving seven consecutive life sentences in prison. And I'm going to write him to be like, why did you kill these other two people? 
You know, I'm not surprised. Well, actually, she talks about writing these people, but she ain't never done it. I, I forget. She doesn't have stationery. She really wants one of those um, stamps with I, the wax. Yes, yes. I do too. I to- I've totally thought about like that being like a wedding registry present. They're expensive as shit, though. Mm-hmm. Can you get me that? No. <laughs> Donna's like, I'm getting you my presents. Yeah. Presents with a C, not with a T. Mm-hmm. There was some more about the case where were they going to try to do an insanity plea versus not, but... There was so much to support his planning with the getting the money out, the buying the firearms, the this, that, that there was really no basis for it, you know. And I think he was so terrified of the death penalty that he pled guilty. There's some pretty heartbreaking stuff about Michaela's dad, like, literally holding a lock of her hair in court, like, begging the judge to give him the death penalty and oh, not gosh. accept the life sentence, please. But... I mean, they obviously accepted the plea. You know, it's interesting, though, because it seems like from the outside looking in, he had everything he needed to address his mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was a matter of it was poorly treated. I don't know if it was he had been on medication and had stopped taking them because he was getting better. I don't know, but it's... One article I read said that he had been off of his medication for a a while before this happened. So, I don't know if he took himself off, if he ran out of access. I don't know. But given his financial stability, you would would assume, you know, would assume and get you, but you would assume that he would have access to the mental health services that he needed. Yeah. Wow. Well, I didn't see who he killed coming besides his sister's. But yeah, I, I mean, thought he was going to kill like everyone then. Yeah, either you would think either everyone or his immediate family, including yeah. his parents. Yeah. But I mean, his parents were his support system. But come on, dude. Like, you knew you were going to be on the run. So they weren't going to support you. They couldn't support you. Mm-hmm. Now they can just give him money on his commissary. I bet they don't. Oh, I think they do because. I can't believe that. Really? Yes. They, so. Because they were there. Yeah. And he shot Michaela five times. Like, even, like, I know that he shot their daughters and their pregnant daughter, but Michaela, five times. He's their child. No, maybe that's why I should never have kids, because, no, you can have your fucking water and toast then, because you ain't getting nothing from me. You don't think your mama would have helped you in any possible way? Oh, my mama would. I'm talking about me. No, that's what I'm saying, though. Um, That's what I'm saying. Not everyone's like you. You're weird. No. Most people love their kids unconditionally. That literally means with no conditions. No, I don't think anyone really loves unconditionally. I don't. Do you like, think your mama loved you unconditionally? No. What do you think you could do to make her stop loving you? I didn't say, like, they would just, like, stop loving you. But, like, there's got to be something that's, like, mm. No, I honestly, I think if I killed, if I killed family members that she cared about, I don't think she would have bought. I don't know. I don't even know if they're buying stuff on commissary. But I. You would? Yeah, Probably. If he, okay, so if he came in and sliced Bo up in front of you, okay, like mm-hmm. you'd be like, 
Okay, I'll still do it. I mean, I'm not saying day one, go get you a fucking Milky Way. I'm saying after some time of working through it, yeah, it's still your child. Like, clearly there was something going on, mental instability. So, yeah. No. Mm-mm. All I have to say, Carrie, is don't kill anyone I love. Like, if you come after Marbu, not putting anything on your commissary. I might be like, uh, do y'all need a shank? Because I will. I'll come visit y'all, and here you go. You ain't putting that shank nowhere. Mm-hmm. If you hurt Marbu. I love that that's her, her go-to. Like, not if someone hurts me. Not if someone hurts, I don't know, anyone else in her life. <laughs> her fucking dog. And that was your example for me, not Colby. No, because Colby's been in your life for a year. And I know Bo's been in my life for a year. Yeah, but Bo, like, you take care of. Like, that's a thing. Well, y'all tell us what you think about both of our stories. And would you provide someone with money on their commissary? Well, and obviously, I think of being a better parent, me, because she's like, and Bo, bleh. No, definitely not what I said. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, y'all tell us what y'all think before, so I can kick this girl out of my house. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, I want to know, would y'all put money on the commissary? Now, there's a thing of, like, if he robbed a bank but didn't kill anyone, cool, okay. Like... I got you, boo. Yeah. All right. Here's, you know, like, get you some Crocs or something. I don't know. I don't know what they can do. I don't know. I don't watch 60 Days In all the time. Oh, that's a good thing for my story. The prison experiment, mm. 60 Days In, is basically that yeah. on TV now. Yeah. You that you literally just put that together? Yep. Okay. So, okay. I forgot about that, but I meant lock up like you did before Colby came into the picture. That was her uh, nightly porn, I think. Y'all, we gotta go. <laughs> This girl gone wild. Colby came in. She's oh, I watched Matlock. Don't. Mm-hmm. Matlock. Forensic Files, girl. <laughs> okay, for real, for real. Y'all tell us what y'all think about the experiment. What y'all think about this Thanksgiving family annihilator, kind Ugh. of. And. Commissary. Commissary. Thank y'all so much for all of your support. And remember. Creep it real. And, and don't, don't get scared. scared.